Epiphany Fellowships podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Why don't you stand with me this morning as we get ready to get into the Word. Y'all excited about the Word this morning? Amen. Amen. Listen, why don't you join me in James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. James, the second chapter, beginning at verse 14. If you're there, amen. If you're not, it's up on the screen for you. Y'all know how I like to do. I'm going to read the evens. You're going to read the odds. And we're going to read the last verse together. Amen. Y'all didn't sound sure about that. I got the evens. You got the odds. What are we doing on the last verse? Amen. Amen. Here's the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. senseless person are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless you see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was made complete you see a person that is justified by works or you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone altogether for just as the body without the spirit is dead so also faith without works is dead I just want to tag our text this afternoon how alive is your faith how alive is your faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we get to spend together in your word. May you fill us by it. May we be edified through it. May we be changed to, 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 to new life because of it. Uh, we, Father, we know that, that, that your word is life-giving. And it is here in your word that we find truth. And so, God, we pray that you would help us to receive it uh, with humility and be committed to being people who are not just hearers, but doers also of your word. This we pray in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen and amen. You might be seated. How alive is your faith? You know, I was thinking about something the other day, and this thought passed my mind. 
if you were going to commit a crime, Talk about it. kidnapping is probably the most complex. <laughs> I know that sounds a little dark, but stay with me. We're going somewhere. <laughs> See, kidnapping requires a lot of work. You got to like physically grab somebody. Then you got to transport them somewhere. You got to hope nobody sees you. You got to hope that they don't try to escape. It's just too complex. There are too many variables to account for. But, but if you want to receive a ransom, this, this, is where, this is what makes it even more difficult. Kidnappers only have leverage to negotiate if you're alive. That's why before anyone acquiesces to their demands, they require a sign. They, they, they want to know, can you, can you put them on the screen so I can see them physically? Can, can you hand them the phone so I can hear their voice and they can talk to me? There, there's, there's, there's something or anything that you can give me to give reassurance that you are not, in fact, already dead. Well done, brother. It's referred to as receiving well done, proof bro. of life. You're free to get see, it's not just enough to. to be verbally told. That the kidnap is a lie. I need to see some evidence that meets the definition of what life looks like. The body by itself isn't enough. I need to see activity happening in the body that communicates it's alive. Can I make the connection for you this morning? If no one can see the evidence that is the activity of life of this faith that you keep talking about that you have then how do I know that you have it? See, your, your, your church attendance is just a body. Your worship playlist is just a body. Your consumption of sermon podcasts is just a body. I want to know, is there life in your faith? Those little catchy slogans you put on your social media bio, bio they ain't nothing but modern-day bumper stickers. Does your faith have life now if we want to ensure that we are living spirit-filled lives of faith then we have to acknowledge one thing and this is my only point for us this afternoon living faith necessitates action look what James begins he says what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but does not have works can such faith Save him. James begins this interrogation here in verse 14 where he begins to drive home his point. And he begins to ask two questions about the saving efficacy of a faith that is not simultaneously at work in deeds of mercy. And so he challenges both here and in this book as a whole the assumption or the claim of faith that is not accompanied by works. See, James is concerned with the the disparity of this claim and the absence of the works that should be present with the claim that is being made. The disparity comes from what he's already been talking to this community about that we see in verses 1 through 4 and earlier portions of this chapter, that which Pastor Mark preached about last week, that there is a community of faith that treats the rich a particular way, but treats the poor in a different type of way. And so he says, can this faith, this faith that you claim to have but is not accompanied by works, can this type of faith save you? 
See, in this context, faith evidently means a confessional faith in God as one and Jesus as the Messiah as sufficient for redemption, but not necessarily accompanied by deeds of mercy towards the marginalized. It's the person who says, yes, I have faith in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't require anything else of me. And so the emphasis, if the emphasis in verse 14 is not on what one believes, but on the claim to believe, then that emphasis entails the absence of mercy, of love, and of compassion for the poor. And here, James is being very clear or implicitly clear that that kind of faith is not the kind of faith that's able to save. Essentially what he's saying is that while works may well indicate the presence of faith, the absence of works proves the absence of faith. See, there's a, quite a bit of conversation that happens in this passage where people assume that there's this contradiction between what Paul says about works of the law and what James here means when he uses the same term or a similar term when he talks about works. But unlike what Paul means when he says works of the law, James understands through the lens of a Jesus creed, meaning that he generalizes works into a life shaped by following Jesus' teaching about doing the law through love of God and others. That is, for James, works means a life of loving God and loving others, and loving others means deeds of compassion towards those in need. So what does James mean when he says save, that this type of faith won't save you? Well, well salvation here he means is regenerative. Regenerative, It is morally transforming, meaning that when you believe upon the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God dwells within you, it produces something in you that changes you, meaning that it's impossible for you to be a blood-bought believer and not be changed from who you used to be. It, it's, you, you go through a process like metamorphosis. I know that's a big word, but, but, but in case you don't know what it means, let me describe it for you. When, when a tadpole is born, it, it, it swims in the water, has to stay in the water, doesn't have any legs, and has a tail. But, but eventually it goes through a metamorphosis where it grows legs and it loses the tail and it can move from the water onto the land. Uh, guess what? That thing becomes a frog. And when it becomes a frog, can it ever go back again to be in a tadpole? No, it cannot. You know why? Because it's gone through a change that has been rendered it so different that it can't go back to what it used to be. And so the argument that James here is making is, is, is he's saying the type of faith that saves you is the type of faith that can be evidenced because of how you've been changed, how you've been made different. And the tragedy for James is that those who claim to have faith but do not have works will not be saved. But the interesting thing is that, that this is not a position that's unique to James if you go look at Luke chapter 3 you'll see John the Baptist as he's as he's spitting fire to the Pharisees and he says he says you need to produce a fruit consistent with repentance 
even if you were to look at Jesus' interaction with the crowds and with the Pharisees, he says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, you will recognize a tree by its fruit. So th- this, this, wasn't, this wasn't some new construct that James was bringing up on the forefront for the very first time. This idea of having a faith that was accompanied by some type of work, some type of behavior, some type of activity had already been established pre-James's writing. Let, let me see if I can make it plain that, that there are certain behaviors that make you identifiable. You know, I, I watch a show on Amazon called The Boys. It's quiet in here because some of y'all don't want to expose yourself that you watch ratchet shows like that. But I'm not scared of y'all. On this show, this show is about a group of people who have superpowers and they posit themselves as superheroes and yet their behavior is nothing like that of a superhero. Because in order to be a superhero, you have to have superpowers. So you got to be able to fly, got to have super strength, got to be able to teleport or, or run incredibly fast. But, but that's not enough to be considered a superhero. You also have to use those powers to help people. So you can't just claim to be a superhero, but we never see any evidence of supernatural ability. And if you were to have powers, you can't claim to be a hero if you never use those powers for the good of others. To have one without the other fully negates the claim of being or doing something that requires both. And so here, that's what James is saying. He was saying, in order for you to have faith that's genuine saving faith, you can't just have faith or works. you got to have both. And the evidence that your faith is real is the works. He goes on in verse 15, and he begins to give a a graphic, albeit comedic, example of what this looks like to to, to have faith without works. And the only reason that this is humorous is because the way he writes it is, is almost as if he's saying, surely the followers of Jesus would not behave in such an overt and conscious manner in this way. That's what makes what he's saying so funny, because Christians don't do this. And yet he says... If a brother or sister is without clothes, it's, it's, it gives the graphic image of being naked or the inadequacy of clothing or being poorly dressed or incompletely dressed. It's an image of shame and defenselessness. He says if a brother or sister is in such a state or lacks daily food, does not have their daily allotment, he says they come to you and they make their need known and all you do is tell them to go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't give them nothing. You don't do anything for them. And so James contrasts his description of the neediness of someone in the Messianic community. Remember, he uses the term brothers or sisters, meaning that they belong to the body. He says he says he he contrasts this description of their neediness with the incomprehensible response on the part of the others in the community. It says that that the person with whom they express their need to both wishes them well and does nothing to help them. This phrase, go in peace and, and be warm and be well fed, it's a, it's a common usage of this expression 
that suggests the blessing and peace of God upon a person. Essentially, he's saying, may God's peace be upon you, may God warm you, and may God fill you up. Meaning that they put the responsibility on God and absolve themselves of any tangible involvement. See, the tragic, the description here that James gives is, is a tragic one because he's talking about how this messianic, messianic community is connected to the Messiah who himself became poor to make others rich and who taught in word and deed to show mercy to those in need. But not only are they connected to the Messiah, they're connected to the scriptures of Israel, which from beginning to end advocate for mercy and compassion to those who are in need. And not only that, but in their own community, it's filled with the poor who know the underside of oppression. And yet, this is what perplexes James to use such strong language, is that this group of those who say they have faith in Jesus the Messiah, the glorious one who became poor, does nothing for those who make their needs obvious. And so James draws his conclusion in verse, 20, in verse 17, the conclusion that has quietly lurked behind everything James has said since the beginning of this paragraph, simply that faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. And so what, what's also being implied that we have to respect about what James is saying is that we, we have to respect that, that James is saying that there are those who claim faith, who are connected to the community of faith, who even confess an orthodox faith and who may well even be supporters of the faith but do not have works. And what he says, this faith, their faith, that type of faith cannot save. For true faith is proven by a willingness to step forward and offer concrete assistance. That's why, that's why he says in chapter 1, verse 27, that true, true religion looks like this. It looks like looking after the orphans and the widows. The contrast here, and this is important, the contrast here is not so much between faith and works as it is between dead faith and living faith. So James moves on in verse 18 and 19, and he begins to use a style of giving a response to an imagined opponent, which is a form of ancient rhetoric. And the thought here is that it's possible he might be talking to or responding to an imaginary opponent who was someone who had taken to Paul's teaching on the works of the law, but is now misrepresenting that position in a way that doesn't truly conform to Scripture. And so he begins to say, Oh, okay, you, you say that you have faith in works or you can have faith separate from your works. He says, well, listen, I will say show you, I'll show you my faith by my works. And, and then, he, then he goes on to make this statement. He says, okay, so you say that you have a confessional faith in God, that you have a creedal faith alone in God. And, and here he says, I'm glad you have a confessional faith, like that you have a, a, an, an academic or a, 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 a mental ascent of, of confirming and believing that God is one and Jesus is his Messiah. I'm glad you believe that. But guess what? Demons believe that too. De demons believe that too. But, 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 but here's the kicker when Paul uses this language, or James uses this language rather, to suppose 
that the belief of the demons in God is merely intellectual is to greatly undervalue the point. The belief of the demons is no more is no mere intellectual assent of passive consequence for the demons believe and they shudder. Listen, it means that the demons believe something about God that occasions a response. What he's saying is for those that claim to have faith but not have works, your claim to faith is worse than a demon's. Because when obvious needs come before you and you don't respond, the demons at least shudder because they know something about God that has a majesty or a holiness in mind that moves them to some type of response. So the impact of these verses, 18 and 19, is clear that, that faith without works is faith in name only. In verse 20, James even makes his point with a bit of wry humor in the form of wordplay, where, where he says, uh, faith without works is useless. Essentially what he's saying is, faith without works don't work. But one of the things that I love about this passage that often gets misunderstood is James is not advocating for a works versus faith conversation. Rather, his emphasis in this passage is on their inseparability, not on distinguishing them or on their sequential relationship. And he's going to begin to describe this. He already said in verse 18 that works show faith. He's going to say in verse 22 that, that faith works with works. He's going to say in verse 22 that faith is perfected by works. In verse 23, he's going to say that works fulfill faith. And so in this conversation, he's not trying to pit faith and works versus each other. He's trying to say that they work together to produce the salvation that's real. So then he goes on to verse 21. He says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? So it's interesting that James here interprets both Abraham and, and the example that he'll use with Rahab beginning in verse uh, 20, 25, he, he, he views them or interprets uh, their story in scripture through his own theological grid of how faith and works work together to produce salvation. And James in verse 21 does something interesting. He tells us exactly which work of Abraham's it was that justified him, namely when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Y'all remember that story, Genesis chapter 22? He, he tells his son, hey, come with me. We got to make a sacrifice unto the Lord. And, 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 and they're walking up the mountain, and Isaac turns back to him and says, Father, I, I see uh, the wood, and, 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 and I, I see the fire, but where is the sacrifice? See, Jewish tradition calls this event the binding. And the emphasis of this event is squarely on Abraham's faithfulness. And this event, based on James's interpretation, became the summary act of obedience in Abraham's life of faith. And so James here is drawing on deep Jewish tradition that this act of obedient faithfulness by Abraham was a singular or the singular event in Abraham's life that led to God blessing him and to the formation and blessing of the people of Israel. And so if this is the case with a singular event representing Abraham's faithfulness, why does James use the plural for works in verse 21? Or, 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 or in verse 21, 
uh, the thought is this, that perhaps because the one acting of the binding or this event sums up all of the other works in the testing of Abraham's faith. Meaning that we also need to recall that right before this moment, there was an incident in which Abraham showed hospitality to strangers that were in need. If you look back at Genesis chapter 18, you'll see that there were a group of strangers that came to Abraham, and Abraham ran and, and told Sarah, like, we need to make some bread. We need to, uh, we need to make a, a fatted calf and a lamb and feed them and take care of them and give them some place to rest. This was right before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all can go back and read the account at Genesis 18 and 19. It's still there. Uh, and, 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 and so, and, and, and Abraham's hospitality, hospitality to those strangers directly precedes the birth of Isaac. And so James here is making an assumption. He's assuming that agreement with his point, that his audience has agreement with him in his point that Abraham was not justified until he laid Isaac on the altar. If he can make that assumption, then he's assuming that his readers will draw the conclusion that he is drawn. That it's not so simple to say that first Abraham had faith and then he had works. And once he had both, he had what it takes to get salvation. The faith of Abraham, the faith itself, worked itself out in the works. And it is the faith itself that is completed by the works. Meaning that Abraham had a working faith, not a faith plus works. See, Paul uses Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 as potent evidence that justification occurs solely by faith. You can see this in Galatians. The, 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 Paul's entire point uh, in, in the book of Galatians comes from his understanding of how Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 points to salvation being from righteousness alone, not from performing works of the law uh, in, in accordance to uh, the, the Torah. However, but, but by trusting in the word of God apart from works. However, Paul still knew the importance of works. Right? You see that in Galatians chapter 5, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's what James does. James comes at this topic from a different angle. Because while Paul faces some and is writing to some who think of Jewish status as sufficient or even as an exclusive privilege, that's not where James is. James is writing to a group of people who think that confessional or creedal faith is sufficient. These different issues lead to different uses of both the faith versus work language and the example of, what, of Abraham, even if both appealed in their own way to Genesis chapter 15. And so here's what we got to understand, that this issue is not a matter of who got Abraham right. This matter is of hermeneutics in a Jewish world. Let, let, me, let me see if I can make it explain. I, 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 like what, uh, I like what Sharon Dowd says on this topic. She says, James is using Paul's vocabulary, not his dictionary. Oh, y'all didn't get that. <laughs> Let me see if I can make it plain. One of the reasons why I hate Twitter, just one, there's a few, but there's one. One of the reasons I hate Twitter is because you can post anything on Twitter. And you will always have one person that tries to twist what you say. I could put, I like pancakes. So you hate waffles? It's one of the most annoying things in the world. 
But one of the things I learned, especially being married, is that you can cut down on a lot of conflict if you make sure that you're defining terms the same way. See, I'm, I'm about to bless somebody's life right now. <laughs> One of the issues a lot of people have when they get into arguments is you can end up having the same point or a lot of points of agreement. And the reason you keep going around in circles is because you guys are using the same words, but you have different meanings attached to them. And that's what's happening here in this passage and why it causes so much controversy is they're using the same language, Paul and James, but the way they're using this language is for different reasons. And so this binding event in Genesis chapter 15 or, or Genesis chapter 22, James is saying that it was this event that consummated or brought to feel full realization the faith that Abraham displayed back in Genesis 15. The faith that trusted Yahweh's word came to completion when Abraham lifted Isaac on the altar. The faith of Abraham was not a sterile intellectual ascent. Rather, it was a faith that manifested itself in trusting actions that were often of great risk, such as the near sacrifice of his only son. Meaning that it wasn't enough for Abraham to merely say he believed God when God told him in Genesis chapter 15 that he would have a son from his own body and that that son would help to bring about Abraham being the father of many nations. It wasn't enough for Abraham to believe that. Did he need to believe that? Yes, that was a part of faith. But one of the ways that he showed that his faith was actually true faith was that he actually participated in, through actions, believing what God told him. So when God told him, hey, I need you to take your son, your only son, the son of promise that I told you would come from you and would birth and make you many nations, I need you to sacrifice him. Abraham had a decision to make. Either he could say that the trust and the faith that he thought he had in God in Genesis chapter 15 really wasn't real. Or he could say, God, even when you call me to something difficult, even when you call me to something I don't understand, even when you call me to something where I don't know the ending, that's why he told his servant, listen, I'm going to take the boy up, but I'm going to bring him back again. Abraham hadn't come down from the mountain yet. But he, and the promise, the command that God gave him to sacrifice him stunned was still there. But there was something about what God, what Abraham believed about God, that he said, I'm willing to lay him down on the altar. I'm willing to take the knife and raise it above his body. I'm willing to do all of that because I have faith. But my faith is faith through my action. That's why James can write in chapter one, the testing of your faith. Because faith ain't faith till it's tested. Saving faith then is a, it's a trusting faith that flows into deeds of mercy. And non-saving faith is creedal faith without deeds of mercy. And so in this setting, while James may distinguish faith from works, he leaves no room for a saving faith that does not involve works. Then James goes on, he says, just in case you thought that this example of Abraham was enough, I'm, I'm going to give you another example just to fortify my, my position, to add strength to my argument. Verse 25, he says, in the same way, so just 
The, the same argument I'm making about Abraham is the same argument I'm about to make through Rahab. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? And so if justified means to be judged in the right by God or to be made righteous or to be vindicated before God, then as with Abraham, God judges Rahab to be in the right on the basis of her works. It, 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 it's, it, it, it would have been one thing. Listen, remember Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 5. Rahab had declared to the spies, I've heard of your God and the wonders that he has done for you in Egypt and as you've made your way into the land. So Rahab had faith in the God of Israel before they got there. But what if she was too scared to hide the spies? And she merely said, well, I believe in your God, but, but. So James is making the same point that he made about Abraham. That her faith, the ascent of believing in God wasn't enough. Her faith produced something in her that said when an opportunity arose, I had, because I have this faith, it requires me to meet a pressing need. And, and so she hides the spies, and, and it's not without significance that James sees Rahab's work in her hospitality, that is, in her treatment of the Israelites in need, and sets her behavior as the standard before the Messianic community. This example is chosen because the church has refused to show hospitality to those whose outward appearance indicated that they had no ability to benefit the church. Yet both Abraham and Rahab showed hospitality to those whose outward appearance mirrored the poor in the church. It's what I like to call reverse consumerism. You know how sometimes we talk about um, the people of God and how we can look for churches sometimes, like being very consumer-driven? I don't know if y'all have heard that, but it's true, right? That, that we often try to go to churches based on what they can do for us, based on whether or not we like the worship, based on how well we're being ministered to. And we, we talk about that sometimes, but the opposite is also true. There are times where people come into the church and we treat them a particular way based on how much we think they can contribute to the church. And so if you got certain gifts and talents, oh, come, come on in. We could use you. But if, if there's no perceived benefit from the church's end, then sometimes even as a, someone who should have a place of belonging in the church gets left on the fringes if there's nothing we think we can get from you. And that's what, that's what Paul is, is, is jamming them up about now. He says in verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also... Faith without works is dead. From the beginning to end, this chapter has one central theme. The inseparability of faith and works. If the faith is to be saving and the works justifying. For James, a saving faith is one in which the confession is manifest in the works of mercy towards those in need. Let me, I'm, I'll say this last thing, I'm going to get out your way. 
There's something about the human experience that causes us to be obsessed with finding life in places where there are no signs of life. You know, we send probes and astronauts out to the far reaches of the galaxy. We got Facebook groups that try to infiltrate Area 51. We make movies that embellish our imagination of what it would be like if we make first contact and wonder about how it would change our world. But let me put this before you. How radical would the world be changed if we were able to find life among the lifeless in the community of faith? What if the world didn't see God's people as irrelevant because of their name only faith? But welcomed them into the most difficult of life's conversations because they had a history of faithful service, of advocating for equitable policies and government, of standing in unity, reconciled over its racial past. What kind of impact could God's people have in the world if their life was a life of faith? accompanied by works of mercy towards the poor and the hurting and the broken. How would life be changed if our faith actually looked like the life that his word says it should? How would life be changed? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Sometimes it's good for us to have a sobering word, Lord, that helps us to look inward. Will you tell us to test ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith? You call us to lives of introspection. You call us to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so, Father, we want to be a people who are known for our love for one another. We want to be a people who are known for meeting pressing needs in the world. And so, Lord, help us to be a people who take seriously our faith. Not just the type of faith that is content and comforted with associating with Christianity as a whole, but the type of faith that takes ownership to walk the extra mile, to give the extra cloak, to bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. Help us to be seen, O oh God, as people whose lives have not been conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing power of the gospel. For it is in that transformation that the watching world gets to see the beauty and the power of the gospel at work in your people. And so, Lord, our prayer is that, that we would be a people who lives for you, who walks with you, who serves in your name, who doesn't count at robbery to be able to give from what we've been given. And so we thank you, Lord. We praise you, and we exalt the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Why don't you stand with me this?
morning as we prepare to take of communion. Is there anyone who wanted to take communion that does not have one of the cups? Anyone that needs to be served communion that wants to take that does not have? Amen. Communion is a time for us as the people of God to reflect on the beauty of who Jesus is and the fact that he made himself poor and took on flesh and then lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father but because of our sin, he took on the responsibility of going to the cross in our place and in our stead to pay a penalty that was not his but was ours. And on that cross, he died, but then was risen to new life again. And it's because of the power of his resurrection and the promise of salvation for those who have believed upon his name. It's for those reasons that we get to eat together and reflect and remember and worship and rejoice in his sacrifice for us. And so on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which has been broken for you. And as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Afterwards, he took the cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood which has been poured out for your sins. And again, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Amen. Receive the Lord's benediction. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said amen. Amen and amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.